The book of Judges is where we have been parking ourselves over the last several weeks, and we're going to continue there over the rest of this uh, summertime. And this week we are picking up in Judges chapter 7. And I promise that in Judges chapter 6, I didn't give all of that material its due. There's so much that we could do. Uh, This is much more of a plenary session. This is much more of a primer, if you would, uh, to the book of Judges. And I hope that it stimulates you and encourages you to read more on your own and to study a little bit more. And we're looking now at the life of Gideon, one of the judges. And it's a man who, as we learned last week, is a man with a bunch of faults, a man of weakness, but a man within whom God found pleasure and said, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to use you and transform your life uh, to be an incredible leader of the people. And you're going to do great things, things that you never would have imagined or dreamed you could do. And so we've looked at Gideon and I hope that you can relate to him. There's Gideon down in the wine press last week. He's down basically below ground, hiding from the Midianite hordes who have been coming through the land of Israel. Most likely there were famines, they think, and droughts in the land east of Israel at that time. And so the Amalekites and the Midianites uh, and other enemies from the east would come in on their camels uh, and they would devastate the land of Israel. And they would basically rape the land. They would take all of the agriculture, all of the produce, everything that they had. And then the, what was left, they would leave their goats and their cattle and their camels to feed on it. And so the people of Israel were in desperate and dire straits. They were hiding in the mountains. They were, they were hiding down in their wine presses, trying to, to do uh, the work of threshing the wheat. And God came and appeared to him in the person of Christ there to Gideon. And he looked at Gideon. And he said, O valiant warrior, wow, a man hiding. And God looked at him and said, I see something in you that you could never even dream was possible in your life, that I'm going to make you something more than you ever dared dream or imagine because of my presence with you. And that is the work of God in our lives. And every single one of us has to relate to Gideon. If you cannot relate to Gideon, you cannot fully grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ, I promise you. If you look down on Gideon, if you judge Gideon, uh, if you say of Gideon, what a weak, foolish man, then you yourself are standing in a position of pride and arrogance above him, looking down on him. The only way to understand Gideon is really to look at Gideon as yourself. And so we pick up with Gideon now that he's been established by God, uh, that he's gone and he's torn down one of the idols in his family, uh, which was a a Baal, which was um, a statue, if you were, to one of the pagan Canaanite gods of the, of the uh, time where they were fertility gods. And he went in and he tore it down. And it was interesting, the people wanted to kill him because he tore down the Baal. Odd how they flipped it. Because the Old Testament said that a person who had a Baal should be the one who should be killed and not the person who tore it down in God's name. And so everything was turned around. And there's a theme within Judges that we see over and over again. And it says that there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so there's no king. And the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. And they were paying the consequence for it. And so often in our lives we are suffering and we have consequences in our lives. We have difficulties in our lives. We have enemies that are basically coming and devastating our lives. And we don't know what to do. And God says, I'm going to do something in your midst that's going to surprise you. But what you first have to understand is that in your weakness that God shows his strength. That's going to be our theme today, looking at our weakness and God's strength and how those two things come uh, together beautifully. 
So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Judges chapter 7, and we'll read together there. I believe it's printed for you in the bulletin. This is God's word. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your, their hands, into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him set by himself. Likewise, Everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but of the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you were afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, at the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the peoples of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, And their camels were without number, as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian in all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. So there you have the story. And we'll pick up the last little bit. Basically, the last part is they went down and they won. Uh, And uh, we'll look at how they did that a little bit, but that's really not important. The important part is that with 300 men, they devastated the thousands of Midianites and Amalekites and other uh, tribes that had come in, and it described them as locusts on the field, and that their, their camels were without number, like the sands on the seashore. And so there's these 300 men standing up in the valley, above the valley, looking down, and God says, you're going to win the victory, and they do. It's sort of like when you read creation accounts at the beginning. The most important part of the creation accounts is in the beginning God created. And so we can discuss how all that happened, but the most important part is that. So don't get lost in a lot of these things. The most important part of this story is that God wins the victory in the midst of our weakness. And I'm going to look at with you four principles uh, this morning. 
The first principle that we're going to learn from this is that we have a tendency to trust in ourselves or in other gods. We have a tendency to trust in ourselves or in other gods or idols uh, to deliver us or save us. That's the first principle that we're going to see. And what you gain, you see that in, is the key verse of this. If you're reading in Scripture, let me give you a little uh, biblical principle. When you're reading, I'd encourage you to read entire books uh, together. That's how they were written. But if you're reading a story like this story of Gideon, find key verses in there. Find those key themes that come through it. And the key verse in this is verse 2. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So in that is that principle. We have a tendency to say that we did it on our own. Many of you, if I was to press a little bit and scratch a little bit, you would say that the reason that you are where you are, that you succeeded in life, that you've gained what you've gained, is because you're doggone good at it. That you have all the gifts, that you have all of the strength, that you have all of the wisdom, and that you have navigated through life in such a way to get to the place where you are. Most people think that way. We're self-made. We're, we're in a country that believes in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and this sort of American and rugged individualism that we have and that we bring about. And that flies smack dab in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so difficult for people who are successful, for people who, who believe in themselves so deeply to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because at the core of the relationship with Jesus Christ it's to say, I bring nothing to the table that I'm actually lost, that I'm actually uh, in a debtor's position and can't do anything. I believe that's why Christ said it is so tremendously difficult for a wealthy person to be saved. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy person to be saved. Does that mean he doesn't like wealthy people? Of course not. Does it mean that wealth is bad? No, money is neutral. The effect of sin on money is what makes it bad. But what he's saying is usually what happens with people of wealth and people of means is they rest on those means. They look there and say, this is my salvation. This is my hope. And if you don't believe that, look at the reaction of those in our country over the last four or five years to the loss of wealth. You would have thought they lost their very souls to eternal damnation. Now, if you talk to them about losing their souls to eternal damnation, they don't get nearly as bent as they do if you say you're going to lose all of your 401k and all of your retirement accounts. You see, they're more concerned about those things. And it exposes something about ourselves. And God knows that. And so he took, he took Gideon. And Gideon must have been feeling pretty good about himself. He tossed out a couple of fleeces. God had responded to him. He now went and called all of the tribes uh, of Israel, maybe with the exception of Ephraim. And, and they were all there. And they had 32,000 men who were ready to go and fight. That's a big army. And God said, okay, here's the game plan. Bring all of the men together. Bring all of them together. And then tell them this. Hey, if you don't feel like fighting, if you're a little bit afraid, go home. And 22,000 of them said, okay, <laughs> no shame in that. If, hey, the general said it, I mean, the leader said, go home, I'm going home. You can imagine they got back to their tents and their wives went, what are you doing home? Well, he said, if we didn't want to fight, if we could come home and they didn't, I'm home, honey. So there were 10,000 left and Gideon must have been feeling a little bit at that moment like, ooh, okay, the odds, well, 10,000 is still pretty good, but there are an awful lot of Midianites and still an awful lot of Amalekites, but God can do it with 10,000 people. And then God said, Gideon, still too many guys around. I wish I could have been there for Gideon's face. Just that moment. You just want to see him go, huh? 
How many do you want me to have? 300. I want you to get down to 300 men. And I can only imagine within Gideon's mind, somewhere deep inside, he was thinking, God, have you lost your mind? God, what are you doing? I mean, I believe that you're big and powerful and all, but are you crazy? 300 of these untrained soldiers in a country that's been devastated for seven years, we don't have good weaponry, we're going up against thousands of these Midianites and thousands of Amalekites and all the other ites who have come into the land and who are there with us, and you're going to come up with 300? And God said, yep, that's my plan. Almost as crazy as how the angels may have responded in heaven when Christ returned. And they said, okay, so what's the plan of redemption? What's the plan of salvation? What are you going to do now? Are you going to get all of us to go down there and take care of it for you? He goes, no, I entrusted it to the men and women down there on earth. They must have gone, are you nuts? What's your plan B? And he goes, and he said, there is no plan B. The gospel is sheer craziness. Because it says that the wisdom of God is folly to men. And God's wisdom in this case was to take away all of the army. And the way that he did it was simply to go take the 10,000 to the stream and see how they drink water. And 9,700 of them got down like dogs and they lapped the water up. And the other 300 of them, it says, took their hands to their mouths, cupped the water and brought it up. Now this is a great preaching point. And preachers have loved it for years. And here's what they've said about it. They've said this, ah, the 9,700 who, who looked down on the water took their eyes off of the horizon. They weren't good warriors because a good warrior would kneel down and he would look to and fro and he would bring the water up to his mouth, hand ready on the sword. And God saw those 300 and he used those 300. So folks, don't be like the dog lappers. Be like the ones who brought the water up to your face, always on the look, on the horizon because God can use you at that point. That sounds good, doesn't it? That preaches. Anybody heard a sermon sort of like that? few of you. Problem with that sermon? Not from this Bible. It actually steals from God's glory because then what it's really saying is this. God chose able-bodied men. Really what God was doing was simply saying, I'm going to grab 300 who drank water in this way and I'm going to use those 300 and my glory is going to be seen. And it got down to 300 men he got down to a place of absolute weakness. Why? Because he wanted to prove to Israel and to the entire world and to all of us who are reading it today and all of us who are looking at this and saying this, it isn't about you. Let me put that in a southern vernacular. It ain't about you. It really isn't about you. It's about him and his glorious might working through your, your weakness in the midst of this. But our problem, principle one, is this, that we trust in ourselves too much. And we trust in other gods too much. We trust in other things. How clever we are. How much we have. All of these different things we trust in. And so what happens there uh, is it's, it's clear that God is trying to get the attention of Gideon and the world in the middle of this. And he's trying to get our attention. So the question for you is this. What are you trusting in other than Jesus Christ? What are you trusting in other than Christ? And why are you so afraid of acknowledging your weakness? Why are you so afraid of acknowledging your weakness? 
There's a movie that Lisa and I have watched years ago, and there's a line from it. I don't remember the whole movie very well, but I remember one line. Steve Martin's in it, and he's about to cry in public, and his father looks at him and says, Son, it's okay to cry. Just don't do it too often and never do it in public. That's kind of how we are. It's okay to show, be weak, but do not do it often and never do it in public. You remember the old, uh, you know, antiperspirant commercials, never let them see you sweat. And I imagine the 300 were standing up there on the mountainside looking down in the valley sweating like crazy. And how is this going to happen? So the first principle is this. We have a tendency to trust in ourselves or in other gods to save us. So the lesson that we need to learn here is that salvation is by God's grace and his action and not our own. That carries forward into everything that we understand. The second principle that we're going to see, the first is we have a tendency to trust in ourselves. The second tendency uh, is the principle of weakness. It's the principle of weakness. That God can only use weak things. He only uses weak things. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over, at least write this down and look at it later. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9. Paul writes this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, God does not simply work in spite of our weakness, but because of it. He says that his saving power does not work when we are strong or think we are strong. You realize that, that he works in the midst of our weakness and through our weakness. And here's a couple of things. This is from a study that Redeemer Presbyterian put out, and it asked these three questions. How uh, does this work out practically? The first is this, the necessity of weakness says this principle is the basis of salvation itself. We cannot be saved if we think we are good and able. God's saving power only works on us when we admit that we have no worthiness or goodness in ourselves. And that's tough for some of you. That's tough for some of you. We're going to be doing a new members class. And the new members class, you're going to come up and you're going to take vows. And those vows before the church, the first vow uh, is this. Are you unworthy? Are you unworthy before God? Basically, you know you're going to die, except for the grace of God. That's the very first statement. The first way to understand that you come into a relationship with Christ is to admit your unworthiness. And that is so difficult for some of you guys, because you want to just keep a little bit of yourself in there. Well, I'm about 99%, but I got a little good in me, Bill. We want to look for that eternal little spark within every person. And God is saying, if you try to find that spark, or if you put it up to man's choice and man's volition of choosing God and doing that, you miss the whole thing. So this thing, the principle says, it's the basis of salvation. And this principle also explains how repentance works. You see, it's only when we repent and sorrow over our failures before God that his love and grace become more precious and real to us. You see, the bigger you understand your debt to be, the greater your joy in his payment will be. So it is only as you see our weakness that the strength of knowing God's grace and love comes. You recognize that. You can't pay off your debt to him. You do not have the means to do it. You are absolutely spiritually bankrupt, and you can't do it. 
I'm glad you're at church today, but it doesn't pay anything forward for you. I'm glad you did some nice things this week, but it doesn't pay anything to your account for you. Jesus is saying, I have to pay everything. My righteousness is what's on your balance sheet. My righteousness is what's credited to you. You don't bring anything to the table, and that's difficult for us uh, in that. And then finally, this principle explains uh, how we almost always grow. Our problems come because good things have become too important to us. Anger, fear, discouragement come because of idols. Good things that have become things we feel at an emotional level that we really have to have to save us and give us worth. You see, God is trying to expose things in our lives, to expose things that we think that we need to have. For an army captain like Gideon, what do you think he thought he needed to have? Soldiers. He felt like he had to have numbers in this, and God was trying to say to him, you don't have to have those things in order to succeed. So a question that you have to ask yourself today, practically speaking, is what is it in your life that you believe you have to have in order to live? and to be content in life. And every one of you has something. One way to sort of flesh that out is this. If it was taken from you, dramatically taken from you today, whatever that is that you filled in the blank with, and you, would you respond this way? I just as soon die. I just as soon not live anymore. If that, whatever it is, is taken from me today, I just as soon not be around here anymore. For some of you, it's your spouse. For some of you, it's your kids. For some of you, it's your wealth. For some of you, it's your good looks. For some of you, it's whatever it is. It's your mind. And you say, if I can't have that, then I don't, I don't want to live anymore. Well, whatever that is has become a functioning savior for you. You are serving it. You are demanding life from it. For some of us as parents, it's our children. We have to say of our children, those kids, we have to have them. We have to have them obeying. We have to have them looking good. We have to have them succeeding because if they fail, it's some reflection on us and we can't have that. It just exposes us, so we demand life from our kids. And that's why some of you absolutely go nuts when your kids fail you. Because you've demanded something from them. You've created them into pseudo-saviors into your life. Or maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your own health. Maybe it's your wealth. Whatever it is, root it out and ask those questions. Part of my role in your life is this, to help you ask better questions. What is it that you're serving? What is it that you have to have that is your strength? See, that's what God is trying to do, is inviting us into new ways to trust him. Ask this of yourself. Where are you feeling outnumbered in your life right now? You think Gideon felt outnumbered? Yeah, absolutely. Think about again where they were. They were at a vantage point looking down onto the valley and seeing all of the enemy out in front of them. Do you think they felt outnumbered? Absolutely. Where is it that you feel outnumbered right now in your life, either in a real way or in an emotional way, which is real, just whatever it is, where do you feel outnumbered? And maybe at that point, apply this principle to say God is greater than that. My mom used to say to me, Billy, God plus you makes a majority every single time. Even in that's a heresy. <laughs> God alone makes a majority every single time. But it was encouragement to a little boy who was struggling with life to know that if I have God with me, then I don't ever have to feel outnumbered. No matter what you're facing, no matter what enemy is down in the valley, no matter how great it is, no matter how devastating its effects seem to be in your life, I want you to hear this principle that in your weakness, God is made strong. He is your strength. 
He is your source of hope, not in yourself, not in anything else in this life. It's him and him alone. So the principle of weakness uh, is there. And are you willing then to accept the limits that God has given you in those times and places? Are you willing to accept that maybe instead of asking God to bring more troops to your side, to allocate more resources for you, maybe in that midst of being numbered and limited in your numbers and your resources, you just simply say, okay, God, you got my attention. What am I supposed to learn about you? And what am I supposed to learn about me here? And would you be my strength at this time? There's some of you who know exactly what I'm talking about. You're right there right now. You're looking out on a valley and you are overwhelmed. And what you need to hear is this. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be outnumbered. Because you have an awesome God who always turns the ratio around. He blows away statistics. And one of the ways that he blows away statistics is this. is the third principle. If you're looking out over that valley and you're looking out, here's what some pastors would say to you. And I just finished that whole thing of weakness and triumph through weakness. And they'd say to you, so now go out there without any fear. Go take the valley. Go right out there and take them. And that's true to some degree. And they would say to you, you shouldn't have to have any fear. You should just go and take it because fear shows weakness. Fear shows all this stuff and you have Jesus on your side and how dare you question Jesus. I've read commentary after commentary on Gideon and men and women across the ages have slaughtered this guy. And here's why. He needed some extra assurance. So here's the third principle that you want to get out of this story today. God loves to give assurances to his weak servants. God loves to give assurances to his weak servants. Look at what he said to Gideon in this story. Gideon was looking down. He had his massive army of 300 there. Think about it. We've got about 300 people here in this room. How do you think we would do against thousands of armed cavalry coming at us? And he was sitting there, and I imagine Gideon, as any man, was trying to wrestle with the realities of God in his life and the realities of the promise of salvation in his life and all of this good stuff. And I'm sure in his mind he was going to just a number of days or months earlier when he had thrown out the fleece and when God was there and he was probably remembering that he had met Christ there and he'd worshipped Christ and he'd torn down the bale and he went, okay, I'm getting all this, but I'm still a little nervous. His voice was cracking a little bit maybe in front of the people. And God said to him, Gideon, go down and take the field of battle. But if you're still nervous, go down with your servant and I'll give you a gift. And what did Gideon do? Hey, Pura, let's go. How beautiful of God, the mighty warrior, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, to say to weak servants, I know you still need a little more assurance. Go down there. And so Pura and Gideon went down into the encampment and they were on the outpost and they're standing there and they're wondering how God is going to encourage them and they hear these two Midianite soldiers talking about a dream, a weird dream at that, of a barley loaf rolling down a hill into the Midianite camp and the entire camp was destroyed. And Gideon must have been thinking to Pura, wonder what they've been doing in their uh, off time 
weird dreams that these guys are having. And the other Midianite camper and soldier looked at him and he said, this can be none other than the man of God, Gideon. God has given us into his hands. How beautiful. Does that make Gideon a bad leader that he needed assurance? Does it make him a bad Christian that he needed some assurance? Absolutely not. He is never condemned in this story for needing assurance, folks. And again, I've read sermon after sermon over the last few weeks that condemn the man because he needs assurances. And there are pastors who preach to you over and over again, and you look at and you read about and you see them on TV that said, if you show weakness or you need assurance, then you're not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. That is straight from the pit of hell. And if you hear somebody preaching that to you, what you need to do is stand and head out that way. Because here's what the God of the universe says to you. I know your weak frame. And I come near to the weak. And I will not put out a smoldering wick. And I will not crush a bruised reed. I will come and I'll strengthen you. And I will assure you all along the way. I'm with you. I've got it. And I'll do it in miraculous ways if I have to, like dreams. But more than that, I will use the company of saints around you to encourage you. I'll use my word to constantly encourage you. I'll use this table to encourage you. What do you need to be assured about today? What are your questions to God? For some of you, it might be, does he love me? Does he love me? This table says, absolutely. I love you with an incredibly costly love. I love you so much that my son had to come and die and live in your place and then die and then be raised again because I love you that much that I sent the most precious thing that I had, my own son, because that's how much I loved you. Some of you are saying, have you remembered me? God, do you remember me? Wasn't that Gideon's question earlier? And God is shouting from eternity through his word, not only do I remember you, but I know you intimately. I made your frame when you were in your mother's womb. I knew you before the foundation of time. I am with you, as Jesus said to his stumbling disciples. Hey, guys, I know you're going to need this little word, and here's the word. I'm going to be with you until the end of the age. I will always be with you. Don't ever question my constancy or my presence in your life. I'll never forget you. How could I forget you? Could a mother forget the child at her breast? Well, even if she could, I, your God, would never forget you. Your names are written on my hands. They're on my breastplate. I'm there. How could I forget you? So some of you are asking those questions, and you need assurance. Some of you need assurance of the reality of heaven and the reality and the salvation that you have. You've been raised in churches that say this, you can lose your salvation. One of the founding principles of this church and our denomination and our faith is this, that you can't lose it. If it's up to God and the gift of eternal life is then that eternal, and it is a gift, then what can you do to lose it? There's an assurance that comes with that that you can feel safe in. Some of you are running around hoping that you don't lose it and so terrified that what you've done presently or in the past has caused you to lose it. But I want you to hear this. In your weakness, God is made strong. And he assures you today of his love. And then the final principle that I want you to get out of this whole thing is that the end game of all of this is worship. It's said that Pura 
and that Gideon were there, and they listened to this story and the dream, and then they heard the interpretation. Interesting, God used pagans to interpret a dream for his own encouragement of his own people. God uses whatever sources he wants to use for the encouragement of his people. And look how Gideon responded. And he worshipped. Why do we do this every week? Why do you come every single week here? It should be for one singular purpose and one purpose alone. To respond in worship and awestruck wonder and in amazement at this God who uses people like you and who saves people like you and me. And it should make us just simply respond to him in worship of going, God, you are glory, you are worthy, you are blessed above all things, and I give you my life fully and completely today, and I will sing with everything that I have. I don't care how off-key I am. I don't care if I don't know the hymn or I don't know the new song. I don't care if it's a hymn or a song. I don't care anything about all of the accoutrements that are around here. I care about you, and I'm going to worship you today because you have won the victory before I even stepped on the field of battle. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we worship. That's why the one thing that we say we want to do better than anything else in this church is worship. Why? Because a church that worships well, not entertains well, doesn't have all the best bells and whistles, will never have all that stuff. But a church that worships well is a church that gets it. Do you want to know why some people raise their hands in worship? It's not because they're Pentecostals or Charismatics. I don't want to give that away. It's because people look up and go, God, you're amazing to me. And I raise my hands before you in surrender and in wonder to who you are. Or other people kneel before him. It's because they go before him and in absolute surrender before the king of kings worship him. How some people give their gifts to the Lord and celebrate and confess. It's out of worship. When you know that God is the victor, it leads to the end game, which is worship. Had a, and we'll end with this. I had a professor who put it this way. You show me a person in church who doesn't sing, and I'll show you a person who has a spiritual problem. I'm not asking you to sing well. I'm not even asking you to sing loudly, per se. But I am asking you to worship and sing, to praise him, because what that shows is someone who realizes these principles. That we have a great God who works in our weakness, who has won the victory for us. And then the rest of the story was this. And they shall make war on the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome. They made war on him, and he won. And they're making war on you, and he won. They're assaulting his kingdom, and he wins. Let me give you a little bit of political advice. Don't get so wrapped up in Washington. Don't get so wrapped up. Uh, in Colombia. Don't get so wrapped up in all of that stuff. Be aware of it and realize it, but know this about our God. He wins in the end of the day. And so it really doesn't matter what our country does. It doesn't matter what the countries of the world do. Guess what? Paul wrote within a system of government that said, you don't have any freedoms. And the church flourished because they knew the end game that Jesus Christ had won. This table is a table of victory that you're invited to. If you're a Christian who's been captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ, then you're invited here. If you're a child who's been admitted to the table by the elders of our church, you're invited, you're invited to come here. For this is a table for weak people, not the proud. 
This is a table for the 300 who look up and go, (laughs) we're going to lose. But then we see the victory and we've won. So let's come to the table and celebrate him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your victory. Father, thank you that you use weak servants like us. More than just using us, you save weak people like us. They really don't have anything to add to your kingdom. But you use us. And your glory and your strength is made awesome in our weakness. Father, now as we sing and we prepare our hearts to come, would you be blessed and would the world hear that Jesus wins, that he wins, that he's already won, and that we enjoy the victory in his presence. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing.